He's risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. One more time. He is risen. Today is Easter Sunday. Some people say it's like the Super Bowl for Christians. I don't know if that's the best analogy, but it is an important, very important day for us. Um, my father-in-law passed away this week exactly at 2 p.m. on Tuesday. And as my family deliberated and there's family processes that happen, uh, the family instructed me to return home to perform service for Easter Sunday. And so I'm here with all of you for this special day. This Easter Sunday, um, I'm going to begin a, a short series of talks called The Reality of the Resurrection. And the reality of the resurrection, I don't just want to gush about the, the resurrection of Jesus, and I just don't want to, I don't want to just kind of um, allegorize. What I want to do is give some rational explanations. I want to... I want to talk about the, the resurrection in a reasonable way. I want to appeal to your senses, to your mind, but especially to your hearts. And so today, I'm going to talk about three reflections on the resurrection. Three reflections on the resurrection. If you look in your bulletin, you'll see three headings in your notes. First is resurrecting a body. Second is resurrecting a faith. And third is resurrecting a trust. And this Easter Sunday morning, I want to talk about Yes, death. I want to talk about resurrecting faith. I want to talk to people here who may have been churchgoers at one season in your life, and today you're just kind of here because somebody dragged you to church. And I also want to talk to those who don't know if they can believe, not only in Jesus but in this resurrection. It sounds like a, a conspiracy. I want to speak to those three different audiences. And so we're talking about the body being raised a faith being resurrected, and third, trust. Because after all, in this day and age, who trusts the church, right? And so first of all, I'm going to talk about resurrecting a body. Resurrecting a body, and um, to help illustrate and kind of talk about resurrecting this body of Christ, I'd like to pull up this image on the screen. It is called The Lamentation of Christ by Andrea Mantegna. You didn't think you'd come to church and get an art history lesson, but I'm going to share that with you. My bachelor's is in, is in fine arts, and this is something that I learned while I was in art school in New York City. And I, just a caveat, I'll, I'll make sure to keep this talk uh, family-friendly, family-appropriate. This painting here by Andrea Mantegna was painted in the late 1400s. Any scholars here, any any uh, historians might know the 1400s was the period of what? In art history. Renaissance, correct. It was the Renaissance. And if you've ever seen Renaissance art, you know that this does not look like typical Renaissance art. Renaissance art is typically two-dimensional. It, it, it doesn't have depth. You'll see this, the characters standing straight forward, straight on. Uh, it's... It's sterilized almost. Even suffering looks artistic. What Andrea Mantegna did at the late 1400s by painting this lamentation, and they've had many pictures like this at this time of the suffering dead Christ, this one was different because it was so realistic. It was hyper-realistic. And it was, it, it, it had nothing, no gilded edges about it. It was not fancy. It was not... Um, 
It was not idealized. In fact, this is one of the first paintings to ever utilize perspective. Perspective. And so you see Jesus' feet first lying down, and it's the first attempt at showing depth. Now, scientifically, the way eyes see, this is a physical impossibility. If this Jesus were to stand up, his feet would be about this big, and his head would be about this big. So as perspective goes, it's not accurate. It's not accurate. Of course, the feet are closer to you, the feet are bigger. But in this picture, there is an attempt at portraying realism, and the word I want to land on is vulnerability. Vulnerability. You do not see a glorified Christ here. What you see is a dead body. This week, this picture came back to my mind for a second time in my life as, he, as I beheld my father-in-law take his last breath. And you think it's, an, it's like in the movies where somebody goes, goodbye, my friends. <sighs> I like that. It's not like that. Death and real life are a series of short breaths at the end that become further and further apart. You never know which is going to be the last one until finally the last breath just goes and is not followed up with another one. And 10 seconds go by, 20 seconds go by, and then you realize this person has departed. And as I witnessed my father-in-law this past week when I was in Virginia draw and expire his last breath, this painting came to mind. The body lying, completely vulnerable and exposed. So I want to talk about vulnerability this morning under this first heading about resurrecting a body. What does it mean for, for Christianity to resurrect a body? We have all of these dramatic presentations on Sunday morning, on Easter Sunday. We want to make, we want to make Easter like the Super Bowl where Jesus rose from the grave riding on the back of a pink bunny, gigantic, and he rose with a huge cape and a huge Superman logo on his chest. No, it was not like that. It was, gir- it was gritty, it was dirty, it smelled. Yes, there are smells in the end. The first time I remembered this painting, if you can just keep it up a little bit longer, was when I myself was in the hospital. I suffered a, an accident playing some sports and had to have some reconstructive surgery on my face. And that's another story. And I remember after being under anesthesia for about eight hours and coming to, and the thing is, you know, on Sunday, you know, I, you know, I got to look presentable, right? But when you've been under for eight hours and you smell and you haven't washed and you're wearing nothing but this thin tissue paper to cover yourself, and then all of the church people stream in into the hospital room to visit you and they look upon you with pity like you're the dead Christ, it's embarrassing. It's like for crying out loud, I'm naked. <laughs> You see me as I am. Christ did not say, put me in my best tuxedo and present me perfectly. You see the human body exactly as it is with its odors, with its discolorations. The human body is Christianity's triumph. Why? Because in the beginning, God created in his image the human body. And in the end, God resurrected that body. Impossible. Give me a spirit. Give me something that's otherworldly. No. Christianity. Christianity is about the resurrection of all things. 
even the deceased. Easter is about the resurrection of a body. Jesus resurrected as a body. Life, death, the meditations I've had this week, when you die, time, I think, becomes, you, you go beyond time. Time, whether it's expanded or collapsed, whatever happens when you die, it's like a blink of an eye. Yes, we are with Jesus in spirit, but as Christians, we also look forward to the resurrection of all things. That's what Christianity teaches. Christianity is not an otherworldly religion. Christianity is very gritty. It is very smelly. It is very real, resurrecting a body. To capture this sentiment, I want to share, you the, share with you the lyrics of a song. The song is a little bit dated. It's called What Sarah Said. What Sarah Said. It's by the band Death Cab for Cutie. And the lyrics convey, in a very real sense, the reality of being in a waiting room to await Good Friday. And it came to me then that every plan, every plan is a tiny prayer to Father Time. As I stared at my shoes in the ICU that reeked of piss and 409. And I rationed my breaths as I said to myself that I'd already taken too much today. As each descending peak on the LCD took you a little further away from me. Amongst the vending machines and year-old magazines in a place where we only say goodbye, it stung like a violent wind that our memories depend on a faulty camera in our minds. But I knew that you were a truth I would rather lose than to have never lain beside at all. And I looked around at all the eyes on the ground as the TV entertained itself. Because there's no comfort in the waiting room, just nervous pacers bracing for bad news. And then the nurse comes round and everyone will lift their heads but I'm thinking of what Sarah said, that love. Love is watching someone die. How many of you kept vigil on Good Friday? And you waited and you watched for the Christ to die. Somebody dies, you go home. Who cares? But love is when you stay behind and you watch. That's the meaning of Good Friday. Resurrecting a body. The Christian message resurrects the body. But we continue now. Resurrecting a faith. I want to speak now to those in this room that maybe at one point or another went to church, maybe you believed when you were a little girl or a little boy, but now you're back in church and look, it's Easter, it's what we do, it's the Super Bowl for Christians. But today I hope that something will stir in your soul, something even mystically will awaken inside of you and the faith will get a second chance. 
I want to resurrect a faith. Yes, I want to resurrect a faith in you today. There's a great story before I read one of our texts for this morning. It's a story by Tennessee Williams. Maybe the older people here, you ever hear of the play, uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Streetcar Named Desire, The Glass Menagerie. Tennessee Williams writes this short story called Something by Tolstoy. Something by Tolstoy. I love this story. When I read it, it's like watching a Korean drama. It makes you want to just break your heart into pieces and cry at the end. Something by Tolstoy is a story about Jacob Brodsky. Jacob Brodsky was a shy Russian Jew. His father owned a bookstore. Jacob, his Jewish father, who was an observant Jew, he wanted his son, go to college, Jacob, go to college. But Jacob wanted one thing. He wanted Lilla. Lilla was his childhood sweetheart. She was a lively, ambitious French girl. And so in order to separate the two, because Jacob Brodsky's father, the Jewish, the Jewish elder, he, he, he felt that Lilla was bad, bad news. Not only that, Lilla was a Gentile. She's not Jewish. So he separated the two. He says, go to college. And so Jacob goes away to college. But while Jacob is at college, his father dies. And his father dies. And what does Jacob do? He comes back home. He buries his father. And then he marries Lilla. He takes that lively French, ambitious French girl and he marries his love and then they move into the apartment above the bookstore. This has got to take place in like the Heights or some, or like in Brooklyn somewhere. There's a bookstore downstairs and they live in the apartment upstairs, much in love and happy, a pair of hipsters. And the life of books, it fits him perfectly, but for Lilla, Lilla, she, she's, I, I got to get out more. I got I to gotta, I gotta gain more Instagram followers. I have, I have ambitions. I got to get out there. I need to perform. And one day she found her ticket. She found a ticket when this smooth, silky-voiced man from Europe entered into the bookstore. And he had one of those perfect mustaches like this. I'm kind of editorializing here. And he comes in and he sees her singing. And he says, you need to come with me to Europe to travel. We're forming this new band. And you're going to be our lead singer. And so they go to Europe. He takes her away. And she says, Jacob, I'm sorry. I just got to do this. And Jacob knows that he can't hold Lilla any longer. And he lets her go. And at their parting, he gives her a key. It's a key to the bookstore. And he says, keep it. Because one day, you're going to come back, and I'll wait for you. I'll wait for you, Lilla. She kissed him, and then she went off to travel with this indie band. Jacob was devastated. He was devastated, and he fell into this deep depression because he was waiting for his love to return. He was all alone on top of a bookstore, and he began to withdraw deeper and deeper into books. That's all he could do to escape his sadness. And so he read different books. Years passed. Finally, 15 years passed. 15 years, both of them were older. And at Christmas time, finally, there was a knock on the door. And the bookstore opened. The bookstore door opened and snow rushed in. And then in walked Lilla. And Lilla walked in and she saw Jacob. And Jacob rose from his reading desk. That had been his escape all those years. But there was no recognition no recognition of the love of his life. 
He thought she was an ordinary customer. And he said, would you like a book? She was startled. He didn't recognize her. And so she said, I would like a book, but I've forgotten the name of it. And he says, well, tell me about it. Maybe I can help you find it. And she says, it's a story about childhood sweethearts. They were deeply in love, and they married, and they lived in an apartment above a bookstore. It's the story of a young wife who left to seek a career and enjoyed all this success but could never throw away the key that he gave her. But still, no recognition. Finally, desperate and pleading, Lilla says, you must remember it. Please tell me you remember the story of Jacob and Lilla. And after a long, bewildered pause, Jacob said, there's something familiar about that story. I think I read it somewhere. It comes to me that it is something by Tolstoy. And he goes to the back to find the book, only to find when he returned to the front, Lilla was no longer there, only a key. And then he returned to his desk and went back to his reading. All these years, you've been away from Jesus, you've been away from the church, you've been away from all that religion nonsense and that religion business, but something inside of you had a spark of remembering. It's something by Tolstoy. That sounds like something by Tolstoy. By the way, if you've ever read Tolstoy, you'll know the allegory. Tolstoy speaks of deeply spiritual things, as does his Russian compatriot, Dostoevsky. They speak of profound spiritual things. It reminds me, this religion thing, I don't feel it anymore, but there are faint yearnings. Whenever I read Tolstoy, whenever I look out the window and I see a, a blue bonnets in a field, whenever I watch a movie or see somebody die, what I feel are these deep spiritual yearnings. It reminds me of something by Tolstoy, but what was it? What was it? I don't remember. Let me read to you a story about a woman who remembered something by Tolstoy. In John chapter 20, Mary was standing outside of the tomb weeping. Jesus had just died. And as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, one at the feet, where the dead body of Jesus had been lying. And they said, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. When she said this, she turned and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't recognize him. This Easter Sunday, how many of you are here this Sunday morning, you've walked away from the faith, but there are these faint stirrings of something by Tolstoy in your heart, something familiar about this guy. She doesn't recognize. And in verse 15, Jesus says, well, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she says, well, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And finally, Jesus says to her in verse 16, Mary, by name, he calls her. He calls you this morning, this afternoon. He calls you by name. 
And he doesn't give you a perfect three-point sermon. He doesn't give you a perfect rational explanation for why you should believe. He meets you existentially. He meets you exactly where you are. He finds that book on the shelf. He talks about something by Tolstoy. He pierces right at your heart. And he says, Mary. And with one word, it's all it takes. No apologetic, no perfect rationing or reasoning, but he calls you by name. Jesus calls you by name. Existentially, you feel it. Friends, when I was in college, I lost my faith. I was studying at the New School for Social Research in New York City, downtown Manhattan. That is a place you lose your faith. That is a place where religion dies and never resurrects. But in the midst of it all, one voice, Wayne. Will you follow me? I love you. Cuts a path through all of the doubts. I still doubt. But I'll never forget that one word. Wayne, I love you. Mary. Friends, this morning, I'm not asking you to lay doubt aside. I'm telling you that Jesus cuts through and speaks directly Mary, he calls your name. Friends, this is a time to respond. Resurrect a faith that used to be alive a year ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago. Today, let it be your opportunity to hear the voice speaking to you. Remember, remember. And I pray now, in Jesus' name, that for all in this room, any in this room who had a faith yesterday, but they forgot, Lord Jesus, I pray that now, I pray that tonight you would speak their name. The third and last thing is resurrecting a trust. And we conclude with this passage, Mark chapter 16, as I conclude with this third heading. So first we talked about resurrecting a body. Second, about resurrecting a faith that somewhere died. Today I'm going to talk about resurrecting trust. Millennials, postmoderns, people today don't trust the church anymore. They don't trust the slick pastor up in the front. They don't trust TV Christianity. People don't trust the church but today I want to resurrect a trust as we look at Mark 16. Listen to these words. These are the last words of Mark. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint Jesus. You know, this is an actual process. We had to talk about that this week, embalming a body. Very early on, the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said to each other, who will roll away the stone for, for, for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right. They saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And they said, and, and, he, and the young man said to them, don't be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, 
this Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. In the last verse of Mark, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, if you look in your Bible, especially in the different versions, many of you are going to see more verses after this. As many verses leading up to, I think it's verse 25, am I right? But scholars believe that Mark originally ended at chapter 16, verse 8. That's why in many of your Bibles you're going to see in brackets, and this is not in the scripture, but in brackets you're going to see the words, the earliest manuscripts and some other, main, um, and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 to 20. 9 to 20, it's tw- 9 to 20. In other words, conspiracy. Somebody rewrote the Bible early on. If this is Easter, you may have watched on CNN Bart Ehrman or somebody talking about the lost hidden gospels. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm losing my faith because there are alternative versions of the story of Jesus. We don't know who to trust. Somebody was doctoring the original texts and therefore there's all these conspiracy theories. When did Mark really end and who really wrote it? And I'll tell you what, let's take this then at face value. If indeed Mark ended on verse 8, they were afraid. Let's take it there then. Let's entertain this notion that maybe people had written verses 9 to 20. Somebody else, it wasn't original. If that's the case and it ended on Mark 16 verse 8, I still believe that there is a powerful message in this. I believe that there's a message that makes sense. Even if we take it from a strictly scientific or literary standpoint, there is literary beauty here. And the key is in that word, young man. Who was sitting by Jesus' side? It says there's a young man. What is he wearing? A white robe. And this young man in the Greek, that word, neoniskos, shows up elsewhere. That word shows up in Mark 14. In Mark 14, verses 1 and 2, just as Jesus is beginning to be taken away by the authorities and all the disciples disperse, there is also a neoniskos. There's a young man. But what does the young man do? Tries to follow. But in the end, when it gets hot, when, it gets, when the heat comes in, What he does is he runs away. They try to grab him, and he's wearing nothing but a linen cloth. And he runs away naked. My seminary professor used to call this the first streaker in the Bible. It's this weird story about a neoniskos, a young man who's running around naked with no clothes on. Is it possible... That the young man in in chapter 14 who ran away naked without his linen cloth is here again in chapter 16, clothed and in his right mind, in his right mind, maintaining vigil at the side of the cross, saying, This time I will not run away. This time I will maintain vigil. This time I will stay put till the end. 
If you've ever seen, hang with me, if you've ever seen The Last Judgment by Michelangelo, we're still kind of on this art history thing, and in The Last Judgment of Michelangelo, there's a multitude of faces, but among those faces, you'll see one face, it's Michelangelo himself. He painted himself in a self-portrait into the picture. Is it possible that Mark painting himself into this picture? A self-portrait of himself as the young man. Mark was time. Painting himself, saying, I was the young man that ran away. And I am the one at the end that was able to come back to the faith and was able to keep vigil until the very end. You see, faith, faith in Scripture, you know, if you approach Scripture as if it's a scientific proof, you will be disappointed. But you can approach Scripture from the lens of literary artistry. There is artistry, there is narrative, there is a possibility to believe in a way that you've never believed before. Because these are the closing words. They were afraid. They were afraid. Now there's nothing scientific about resurrecting a dead body, is there? This is supernatural. There is nothing provable about that scientifically. But what we know for sure that we can identify with in this last story is that they were afraid and like the disciples, Mark was afraid, we are afraid. If I believe in Jesus, they're going to call me a dummy. If I believe in Jesus, I will be ridiculed in my field. How can I believe in Jesus? How can I, how can I testify and be a witness? Well, where are you going this Sunday? We're all, we're all going to go biking. We're all going to play golf. Well, I'm going to go to church. Why? Well, I believe in Jesus. <laughs> are you kidding me? And yet the reality is you're not the only one that's afraid to believe. You are not the only one that's afraid to stay by the cross and to maintain vigil until resurrection. Even they were afraid. That's one of the most common words in Mark, fear. They were afraid, they were afraid. But in the very end, the words close off in, ch in, in, chapter, in chapter 16, verse 7. What does Mark say? And I'll finish with this. Look at verse 7. He's going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him. He is going ahead of you to Galilee, there you will see him. And so the disciples say, okay, we've got to go back to Galilee, and there we're going to meet Jesus. But let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. If you've studied the Gospels carefully, where does everything begin? Where does everything begin? It begins in Galilee. Do you see the beauty of these words? Mark is saying, you don't get this message yet, do you? You don't know if you can believe yet, do you? But look again. Go back to the beginning of the story. Look at Jesus a second time. And then you finish the gospel of Mark and you finish and you say, I still don't get it. I don't know if I can believe. Go back to Galilee. There you will see him. Go back to the beginning of the gospel. You will see him. 
And then you read and you read to the end and you're at chapter 16, verse 8, and you're like, I still don't get it. I'm afraid. I don't know if I can commit my life to this. It doesn't make sense. It's not scientifically verifiable. Why should I believe? And yet there's something by Tolstoy stirring in my heart. And then you hear the reassuring voice of Mark saying, don't be afraid. Go back to Galilee. Start again. It's a loop. The gospel of Mark is. It's a never-ending cycle saying, see Jesus, see him again, see him again and again and again. Because with our finite minds, we will never fully grasp. There have been many times where I've wanted to walk away from the faith. But these words, don't be afraid, start again. Oh man, I messed up. Don't be afraid, start again. There you will see him. I end with the words of C.S. Lewis. I believe in Christianity like I see the sun. Not because by it, I believe in it, I believe in Je- but I believe in Jesus because by the sun, I can see all things. By the light of the sun, I understand everything. I believe in Christianity. Because by it, I can see all things. I invite you to close your eyes this time. You may have walked away from the faith, or you may have been struggling with your faith. Today, we're going to celebrate communion. But I will say, communion is reserved for those who say, I am a believer. I believe. And if you eagerly desire to partake of this meal, you can come forward. I'm not going to keep you from it. But you must believe. And I want to give you an opportunity to believe. And so I'm going to say a few words in a prayer, and you can follow after me. If today you desire to come back home, if today you desire to get back on this road and on this journey, if you desire to return to Galilee, God, I've been wandering oh so long all this time. And today, something has been stirred and awakened in my heart. I don't know if I can believe perfectly. But I want to. I'm willing to. And so today, I want to start a journey of being a disciple. I want to follow you. Not because it will give me a better life. Not because it will make my life better. 
because somewhere deep inside I believe that you are more than just another teacher. I believe that you are more than just another great religious figure. I believe that there is something about you that is worthy of all of my life. And so make me a disciple today. I am willing to turn over my will and the care of my life to you, Lord. And it is in Jesus' name.